Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And we are looking at this passage. You can divide this Ephesians chapter 2 into two sections. And I say two sections. We finished section 1 last week. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And today we'll be working through 11 through 13, part of a larger section, verses 11 through 22. In, in verses 1 through 10, Paul talks about our salvation individually. And now in verses 11 through 22, he talks about it corporately, as a church. Paul follows the same pattern in both the sections. In verses 1 through 10, we see the, the Apostle Paul alluding to the past, present, and future. He did that in verses 1, uh, 2, and 3. He talked about the past. In verses 4 through 7, he talked about our present. And verses 8 through 10, he, he talks about our future. And he follows the same pattern as he comes into verses 11 through 22. And we'll see that in verses 11 through uh, 13, he talks about our past. Uh, and, and 13 and forward uh, through 18, he talks, through 17, he talks about our present. And then he talks about our future later on. And we will look at that in the weeks to come. As we read this together, I want us to focus down into verses 11, 12, and 13. Therefore, always pay attention. Therefore, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is, in fact I would add, called the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now it's always a joy to see and read the but now. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Alright, so let's now see three observations that leap out of the text today. One, we are commanded to remember verse 11a. Second, what is it that we are to remember? Verses 11b through 12. And third, we are filled with gratitude, with humility and gratitude. And that's verse 13. Let's look at the first observation. We are commanded to remember verse 11a. Paul begins there with the word, therefore, meaning on account of. Paul says, on account of the grace that you experience, let us be thankful for the present privileges that we enjoy. And let's walk in them. Let's walk in the works that God has prepared for us. As we move on with the next phrase, he says, therefore, remember. We are commanded to remember. It's a present imperative tense. And when you hear the word present imperative, it's a command. We are, being a present tense, we are continually commanded to do what? We are continually commanded to remember that we were once in the condition mentioned in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, and verses 11 through 12. What was that? It was our hopeless state before God saved us. 
Without Christ, we were at war with God. And Paul is reminding the Gentiles of the fact that not only were they spiritually dead, not only were they impure, not only were they enslaved to Satan, as we read in verses 1, 2, and 3, we were born outside of the nation of Israel, as we read in verses 11 through 12. So today, as we remember who we were before we come to Christ, Paul reminds us, will help us to appreciate and apprehend the tremendous blessing it has been to be in Christ, in the body of Christ. It will stimulate us with an attitude of humility and gratitude. This is what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. It reads, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day, command you to remember that you were at one point a slave. We read in Psalm 103 verse 2. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Apostle John reminds us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And he says, Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So there is this constant reminder in the scripture that we have to go back and remember who we were. There is a prayer book, The Valley of Vision, in which the Puritan writer writes a prayer. He says, Enable me to remember that blood which cleanses all sin, to believe in that grace which subdues all iniquities, to resign myself to that agency which can deliver me from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. So we are commanded to remember. Now let's see what is it that we are commanded to remember. And that we find in verses 11b through 12. So let's begin with 11b. It says that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. Now the answer to the question, to whom is Paul writing this letter, will be found here. Because he says, at one time you were Gentiles. So he's writing this to the people, the church in Ephesus, which was a Gentile church. And he reminds them that they were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Or the so-called circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. In order to understand the Gentiles, we need to go back into a little bit of history here and background, cultural background, and remember that in those days, all mankind was divided into the Jew and the Gentile. The Hebrews called them Goim. In other words, you and I sitting here are all Goim, except probably for a couple of you here who are Jews. But we are all the Goim. And, and, he, and, he, and, and, and when he said Gohim, the Hebrews say Gohim, the Gentiles would never address themselves as Gohim. The Gentiles would never call themselves a Gentile. And so there was a long history of animosity between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles as unclean dogs. The Jew 
prayed every morning. The Jewish man, this is what he prayed every morning. Thank you, Lord, that you did not become, you did not make me a Gentile or a woman. Sorry, woman, but that was the way the Jewish man prayed. The Jew would never eat with the Gentile. The Jews looked down on anyone who did not follow their customs and ceremony. And so there was a mental block between the Jew and the Gentile and the Jew associating associating themselves with the Gentile. If a Jewish family had a child who intermarried with a Gentile, the Jewish family would do a funeral service for the child who married the Gentile and consider them as dead to them. The Jew would not enter, enter the Gentile home. Or allow a Gentile to enter their home. There was a deep racial and cultural difference between the Jew and the Goim. In fact, some Jewish rabbis thought that Gentiles were born to light the fires of hell. This is how despicable the Gentiles were to the Jews. Now the Gentiles as well looked down upon the Jews. The Gentiles thought the Jews were inferior to them. The Gentiles thought they were a superior class. The sign of circumcision was more than a physical distinction. It was a, it was a covenantal privilege that the Jews had. And, and so other than that, the Jews thought that they were a superior class. The Gentiles made fun of the language of the ones who, were, who did not speak Greek. The way any other language other than Greek sounded to the Greeks were like bar, 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 bar. That's why the Greeks called foreigners barbarians. This is why there was that difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The Bible talks about it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. The Bible says, uh, this is what it reads in Acts chapter 10 verse 28. Is, uh, this is uh, Paul and he said to them, you associate... You yourselves know how to, sorry, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown to me that I should not call any person common or unclean, as Peter talks about this. We, we, we see here that in the New Testament, any form of favoritism was not helpful. It was not considered godly. Uh, we, we are used to showing favoritism uh, towards people who resemble us. And this is why we need Jesus to uproot our partiality and love people who don't resemble us. We call it racism. And racism is sin. Uh, and at the root of racism is pride. But here as we look at the animosity between the Jew and the Gentile that had grown over the years, many Jewish believers thought that it was impossible for the Gentile to be saved unless he first became a proselyte Jew. Unless he first kept the laws of Moses and became circumcised if he were a man. And we know that this was a discussion that was taking place in Acts chapter 15 as the early apostles got together to talk about how a Gentile could become a Jew. Now, you may ask, why did God in the first place choose the Jews as a special people? Well, we read that in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. It says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. That means that God had chosen the Jews and set them apart. The nation of Israel was a chosen people. 
Now you, you question why. And we see that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, uh, God tells you very clearly, I will bless those who bless you, and, and, you, and anyone who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the reason God chose the Jew of all the people amongst the other people of all the nations is so that through them, that all the families of the earth will be blessed or shall be blessed. Israel was a chosen nation through which all the nations, all other nations of the world can be blessed. Then you may ask, why did God make the nation of Israel all these dietary restrictions? which were unique to the nation of Israel. Well, isn't that the reason why they stood apart from other nations? Maybe they thought themselves to be prideful and arrogant, that they were distinct and superior from the other people. Well, yes, God did give them dietary restrictions. But this was given for two reasons. God wanted them to be a nation that was a distinct nation, a separated nation, unlike the nations of the world, set apart to be holy, and they were in the world, they were supposed to be in the world, but they would not be amalgamated with the rest of the world. God had set aside the Jews to be a testimony to His holiness. God is a holy God, and, and as worshippers of the holy God, these people had to be holy. But the Jewish people perverted this privilege as, as, a, as a means for pride and isolation. Instead of being a witness to the world, they chose to call names and deride the Gentiles. Now keep in mind, God did not choose the Jews because they were a special people. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, that it is not because you were many in number, or that you were someone special that I chose you and loved you, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. The Jews became proud in spite of that. And they looked down on the Gentiles. Now let's come to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. We read here, as Paul says, that you were called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. What is the meaning of this word circumcision in the Bible? Well, circumcision was a literal cutting and removal of the foreskin in the male. What did the symbolism have to do with? The symbolism had to do with the need to cut away sin and cleanse and be cleansed. Now you'll say, well, how does that happen? Well, the male organ clearly demonstrated the depth of depravity because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. So because the male organ carried the seed that produced depraved sinners, this cleansing of the physical organ had to take place, so in a sense it would not pass on the disease of sin. So here, circumcision was a picture of the deep need for a cleansing from the depravity of sin, which is most clearly revealed here, because only men produce sinners, and only sinners, nothing else. And so there had to be that cleansing that happens. Now circumcision points to the fact that cleansing is needed at that very deep place, a core place, a cleansing that reflected that something had to happen on the interior of you. It was a command given by Abraham, by God to Abraham, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 11, it reads, 
This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It was a picture of something that was greater to come. That it was a shadow of the greater reality to come. Yes, you need that cleansing. And that external cutting of the foreskin was something that was happening on the deeper level. But let me tell you, that deeper level cleansing can only be provided by God and none other than God. And we see that this was going to be fulfilled in the Messiah who would provide the spiritual circumcision. Because Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 says this very clearly. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So here is God making it very clear in the Bible that yes, you need a cleansing. Let me back up. That you need a circumcision. That circumcision is a sign of an internal cleansing. But only God can provide that cleansing. It's an internal work that has to happen. And it will only be done by God. And we read in Colossians in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. Says there in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, that in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here we find that the act of circumcision that was commanded in the Old Testament was indicative of something that was going to come, that a Messiah was going to come, and the Messiah would provide that spiritual circumcision of your heart. And the true Israelite would look forward to that Messiah, recognizing it's only God can provide that spiritual cleansing. And the external circumcision was a sign of the spiritual circumcision that took place in the heart. Is that clear? But what the Jew did was they prided in this. You remember that in the story of David and Goliath, when David called Goliath, as an uncircumcised Philistine. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles as an inferior class because they were uncircumcised. Now let's come back to the text here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. So Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, now this is what I want you to notice, by what is called or so-called circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. So here is Paul telling the Gentile, yes, you are called the uncircumcision, but listen Jew, you're just the so-called circumcision. It's made by flesh in the, I mean, it's made in the flesh by hands. It is not an internal circumcision. You see that? So he's saying, listen Jew, you don't brag about your circumcision. It's just a so-called circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Let's move on. Into verse 12. And he says, Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Stop right there. And begins verse 12 with the word remember. Now if you look at the Greek text, the word remember is only found at one place at the beginning of verse 11. The English text is actually repeating the word remember here to show you the significance of the word. What is it that you're supposed to remember? There are five things you're supposed to remember. What are the five things you're supposed to remember? The state that you were before, before you got saved. So what was that state? Let's go through that in verse 12. It begins with, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That's number one. Two, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Three, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Four, you were without hope. And five, you were without God in this world. These are the five things that they were supposed to remember. Let's go through them individually. First, it says, we were separated from Christ. When you hear the word, you were separated from Christ, that means you were in a state, an unspecified period of time. It was an habitual, repeated action. This is what you were doing before you got saved. You were continually living in a state that was separated from Christ. And he goes on. As he goes on, let me take a little moment here to talk about separation. Separated from Christ. That means you had no connection with Christ. You are Christless. You were without the Messiah. You have not heard of Him. You have not embraced Christ. You had no knowledge of the Savior. You did not desire Christ. You scoffed at Christ. This is who you were before you came to saving faith. You were separated from Christ. Do you know of anyone who is separated from Christ? Do you? I'm sure you know. Are you burdened for them? Are you praying for them? Are you interceding for them? Are you sharing the gospel with them? Or are you living a life with so happy with what has happened to you? You're content with your salvation that you have no desire to share the gospel with someone else. Paul says here, this is your past. Remember this. You were at one time separated from Christ. Then he goes on to the second point. He says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Meaning they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. The nation of Israel was a theocratic nation. God was their king. God gave them the rules. God gave them the regulations. It was a blessing to be having God as their king. Now it's another story that the nation of Israel at one point did not want God as a king. And they desired to be the nation like the nations around them. And they wanted a monarchy. They did not want a theocracy. They wanted a monarchy. But here to begin with, God was their king. God gave them theocratic instructions. God gave them instructions about justice. God gave them instructions about worship. How they're supposed to worship. God gave them instructions on anything and everything that they needed to live their life according to. But there was no such protection to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the Bible says here, were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. They were far. They were far removed. The word alienated, it's, it's a verb. It's in the perfect tense. Meaning it was an ongoing condition for them. 
Meaning they were lost without God. This is what Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says. You were at once alienated and hostile in your mind doing evil deeds. The Gentiles were darkened in their understanding. They were alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness in their heart. And we read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. Such were some of you. So before we take pride in who we are, let's remember that we were at one point of time like these people. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were darkened in our understanding. But praise to God, because Christ brought us into our present condition. Let's move on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. So yes, you were separated from Christ... You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And it says you were strangers to the covenants of promise. A stranger is someone who is a foreigner. Someone who is not having access to what other people have. You can call it a spiritually homeless person. Someone who is ignorant. Someone who is a foreigner. And the next phrase reads, you are strangers to what? You are strangers to the covenants of the promise. Notice the word covenants. It's not a singular, it's a plural. So there are multiple covenants, and we know there are many covenants in the Bible, starting with the book of Genesis. You talk about the Abrahamic covenant, you talk about the Mosaic covenant, you talk about the Davidic covenant, and then you have the new covenant. So there are covenants in the Bible, plural. And so he says, you were strangers to the covenants, plural. Go on. It says, the covenants of promise. Promise is singular. It's not plural. There's one promise. So all of these covenants were talking about one singular promise. Not only that, in the Greek text, it's the indefinite article the, which is not seen in the English. So if I read this, it would read covenants of the promise. Now we know when we talk about covenants of the promise, what the promise is all about. In fact, the Bible says that in Acts chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to Acts chapter 13, verse uh, 32 and 33, talks about the promise. It says, And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers. Do you see that? The good news, the evangelion, that God promised to the fathers. And see what it says in 33. This He has fulfilled to us. Their children by raising Jesus Christ. So here is a promise, the Messiah. And these people, the Jews, sorry, the Gentiles were living as strangers to the covenants of promise. Beloved, are you a stranger today to the covenants of the promise? That you know nothing about it. That you live like it does not apply to you. The Bible is strange to you. Maybe you have no clue on what the gospel is. All this is probably gibberish to you. If you feel this way, let me tell you. It's because you are separated from Christ. It's because you are alienated from Christ. It is because you have no clue on who Christ is. You may know a lot about Christ, but you do not know Christ. And and if you are a stranger, meaning if you're not in a living relationship with Christ, and you're separated from Christ, it's a terrible thing to be living your life without Christ. 
to not be in a living relationship to Christ. Maybe you've heard about Christ, but you're living a life in which your desire for your sin has so overtaken you that you have no desire for God's promise in the Messiah. The lust for your sin is so strong that you're willing to reject the gospel and you are living as a stranger to the covenants of promise. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great commentator, writes, These are people today who read their Bibles, and it does not move them. They can stare in the face of the great and precious promises and wonder as to whom it applies to. They are like people from another country who do not understand the language. They are foreigners. And folks, there is a time in each one of our lives where we were like this. I often tell you, I grew up in a home that was a Christian home. I say that I started going to church nine months before I was born. I knew about the Bible. I knew about stories in the Bible. I knew about Christ until a point in time where I actually knew who Christ was. I knew Him personally. You can be living in a home. You can be coming to church all your life. You can have read your Bible cover to cover. No matter, doesn't matter unless you know Christ personally. And I plead with you, if you are a stranger to the covenant of promise, the covenants of the promise, I plead with you to forsake your sin. I plead with you to repent of your sin. Folks, repentance is not a work. You need repentance for salvation. It is repentance that leads you to salvation. Please repent of your sin. Turn around from your sin and turn to the Savior. Look to the promise in the scriptures. The promise in the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Let's move on in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. So it says, remember you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of the promise. Now look at what's going on now. It just gets deeper and deeper. It says, you were having no hope. A man without Christ is without hope. He has no hope in this life whatsoever. And if you have no hope in this life whatsoever, you have no hope in the life after whatsoever. Frank Sinatra said these words before he died. He said, I'm losing it. Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all. Bob Marley's last words were, money can't buy life. It's too late. None of them had any hope in this world or in the world to come. John MacArthur writes, True hope can be based only on a true promise, on confidence in someone who can perform what he promised. And my beloved, I want to show you that someone whom you can be confident on. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He died for your sins on the cross. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, reads, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Jeremiah refers to the God of Israel by the term hope. Without God, there is no hope. 
This is what the, the New Testament writer Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. People who die without hope are, are having no hope of the future. Because there's nothing that you can do. And I don't want you to grieve like that, Paul says. Lastly, Paul goes on to say that they are without God in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. They are without God in the world. Meaning, if you look at the Greek, it means atheos. That means they are without God, meaning they are acting like they are atheists. You see that? They are acting like they are atheists. Now, I want you to see something here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, please look at me in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ. Now, how does he end it? When you're separated from Christ, it ends with what? You start to the point and you go down, spiral down to the point that you say you are without God. So you begin by being separated from God and you end by being without God. God is the source of everything. And without God... We are without anything. This is what we need to remember. This is what Paul is saying. You, Paul is saying you're commanded to remember this. Remember that if the Lord had not snatched you out of your spiritually dead state, you would still be aliens, you would be strangers, and you would have no hope without God in this world because we would still be in our sins. So Paul says you are commanded. What is it that we are commanded to? We are commanded to remember this. These truths, so that we would not become lukewarm, that we would not be filled with apathy, that we would not lose the joy of our salvation, that we would not lose our hunger and thirst to know God through His Word. The only way we can do this, beloved, is if you and I continue to remember from where we came. That's my second observation. Let's move on to the third one here. We come to verse 13. Verse 13, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And when we remember this, when we remember our past, we are filled with humility and gratitude. Paul begins verse 13 with the words, but now. It's a contrasting conjunction. We saw this contrasting conjunction in verse 4 after having discussed Ephesians chapter 2, 1, 2, and 3 where he said you were spiritually dead, you were following the course of this world, you were enslaved to Satan. He then says, but now here's the good news. He does the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and then he comes to verse 13. He says, but now. It's a joy to see and read the but nows in the scriptures. We who are far away have been brought near to God. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were having no hope and without God in this world, but God. We are in Christ. We are identified in Christ. We are placed in Christ. We who have been far away have been brought near. We are reconciled to God through Christ. Let's look at verse 13 a little more closely. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. Remember the Gentile could not enter the courtyard. I mean, they could, there was a place where they could stand. They could not enter the inner temple. And But now here it says, now you once who were far off have been brought near. Now it's interesting to see that you were brought near to God. You were brought near to God. You were brought into the throne room of God. You've been ushered into His family. You were once children of wrath. You were like children deserving wrath. But now you've been called His adopted child. And you are now in His kingdom. And you've been drawn near to God. I want you to notice something in verse 13. In verse 13, it says, You once who were far off have been brought near. The brought near is a passive voice. It is God the Father who brought us near. God is the one who acted upon us to bring us into the presence of God. We did not come near God on our own. If it was so, Paul would have used the active voice. It is a passive voice. That means God is the one who draws us. We did not come to God on our own. We were brought near to God because God is who He is. Not because of our nature. Not because of the good things we did. Not because of our religiosity. Not because of our morality. We were brought near to God because of who God is. We cannot come to God any other way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. It reads, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God is the one who is reconciling the world to Him. The only way we can draw near to God is through the Son of God, our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to say this clearly because there is so much misunderstanding in the world today in so-called Christian churches. That they can draw near to God through many things. Some teach you can draw near to God through your good works. No, no. Some teach you can go near to God through your religiosity. No. Some teach you can draw near to God through mysticism. And they're out there being mystical about all things. And they chant and they do various things thinking that they can draw near to God. They cannot draw near to God other than Jesus Christ drawing them. Not only that, keep going into verse 13. It's important for us to understand. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. He brought us by the blood of Christ. This is a distasteful truth to many people. But the blood of Christ makes expiation for our sins. The Bible says under the old covenant, any soul, any soul that sins will die. The wages of sin is what? Death. The only atonement possible to cover that is that of a perfect animal. That was what the Old Testament taught. You had to have a perfect lamb sacrificed every time for your sin. And as you read the book of Leviticus, if you had sin, you brought an animal, a a blemishless, spotless lamb or an animal, and that was sacrificed, and the blood was sprinkled into the Holy of the Holies. The high priest did that. And you had to do it every single year. In fact, the Holy of the Holies could only be done once a year. It was called the Day of Atonement. But this is the, the magnificent part of the new covenant, and that is Jesus Christ becomes that perfect lamb. And this is what John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sins of the world. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, and if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, we read here in, in verse 9 that now, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Under the old covenant, the sinner, the sinner would bring a sacrifice, sacrifice the offering, and the high priest would take the offering and sprinkle into the Holy of the Holies once a year. But now Jesus Christ becomes our great high priest. He enters the most holy place. And as he enters the most holy place, he's seated at the right hand of God. That means he has finished what he had to do. This is the gospel. And if we miss the reason why the blood was shed, we have adulterated the gospel. Years ago, in this town, there was a festival of life, festival, whatever it was. A group of missionaries came to this valley, and some of them came to our school and, and came to a group of students and gave them $5 and said, go into the streets and share the gospel. Tell them God loves you. Give them the $5 and tell them God loves you. Is that the gospel? Yes, God is love. But that's not going to save anyone. Everyone likes to hear God is love. I could live in my sin. And God is love. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is the whole truth. And the whole truth is this. That you and I are sinners. There is nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. We are dead in our sins. We are cadavers. And only thing that dead people do is stink. But here is the marvelous, majestic love of God the Father. He sends Jesus Christ to this world. He lives a perfect life for 33 years. He gains all that perfect righteousness. Never breaks the law. So he's no longer under the wrath of God. He's righteous because he keeps the law perfectly. He couldn't sin because he's God. He's 100% God. And then he goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 becomes true. It says, He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. That means on the cross, he takes our sins, the infinite sins of his people. That's what Matthew chapter 1.21 says. He came to die for his people. He takes the infinite sins of His people and is placed upon Him. And in turn, when His people trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, the perfect righteousness is placed upon them. This is called the great exchange. And when God looks from, from heaven and He looks at His Son on the cross, He sees sin in Him. He has become sin, the sins of His people. And when he looks at his people, he sees righteousness, perfect righteousness, positional righteousness, practical righteousness, that's far as a different story. But he sees positional righteousness. And so, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, and you place your trust in him, you have eternal life. And this should fill us with attitude. This is fill us with gratitude, not attitude. This is fill us with thanksgiving. 
they should fill us with humility as we remember our past. Folks, we are commanded to remember. Don't forget that. Remember what? Remember who we were once. And you know when we remember who we were once, it drives us to what? Thanksgiving. Because this is what happened. There are a couple of parables in the, in the Bible. I'm not going to go into all the details. Matthew chapter 18, you remember this one parable of a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And there was one man who had, the Bible says, 10,000 talents debt. If you translate 10,000 talents debt, Jerry Bridges says it amounts to about 200,000 years of wages. Could you ever repay that? Forget repaying 30 years of wages. Forget repaying 10 years of wages. 200,000 years of wages. He was forgiven. And what did he do? He went out, he found another servant who owned him what? The Bible says he owned him just three months of wages. And what did he do? He put him, cast him into prison because he could not pay him three months of wages. And the moral of the story is this. Here's a man who was so filled with spiritual righteousness that he forgot that he was, what he was forgiven of. To whom much is forgiven, much is expected. So when you think about our past, it drives us to compassion for other people. As you counsel other people, as you relate to other people, as you talk to other believers, you will be driven with compassion, not anger. Because you have been forgiven much. Now you can relate to the other person with that compassion and forgiveness. This was the same thing that happened in Luke chapter 7 with Simon the Pharisee. He saw a woman come and anoint Jesus with perfume. And he was shocked at the response of the woman. And more so, how could even Jesus allow that? And you know what Jesus told her? Luke, Jesus told her in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, for he who is forgiven little, loves little. Folks, do you see the benefit of remembering our past? Where we came from? That should cause us to praise God and be filled with attitude of gratitude and humility. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, even as we head into the celebration and as the men come forward, it's an opportunity, Lord, for us to think through your sacrifice for us on the cross. And in response, Father, from the bottom of our hearts, we say, thank you, Jesus. We love you with all our soul, mind, and heart. We thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.